Soon after the end of the Second World War, the United States and the Soviet Union emerged as superpowers, leaders of the two primary ideological power blocks across the world's major continents. After nearly 50 years of competition, the United States emerged victorious and led an unprecedented era of globalization for the next 20 years, promoting free trade and relatively open labor and capital markets, along with democratically elected governments. With the rise of emerging economies such as India and the success of China's state-led capitalism and a resurgent Russia opposing NATO expansion, other countries around the world have taken note, however, as to the potential for new global leadership and development models that differ from America's. Tonight we are joined by Lance, a veteran and host of Lance's Legion, a military history and philosophy podcast to discuss the ramifications for major geopolitical power realignment into the 21st century. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, dearly. All right, welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. Well, as usual, we've uh, we've been focusing more on the 21st century, but I think uh, if anyone hasn't heard Lance's Legion or Lance, uh, I think he'll they'll find that he has a lot to say about both centuries. Uh, but let me introduce my guest today. Uh, our guest, if Hans can join, he was hoping to, but schedules don't always align. But let me introduce our guest, Lance. Uh, we've actually been on his podcast before. Uh, please check it out uh, through Twitter uh, and YouTube. I'll put the links. Lance's Legion. He also has a publishing company, uh, DVX Publishing, I believe. Uh, but Lance, uh, welcome um, to Myth of the 20th Century. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How you how you got into podcasting? Your I think you have a military background, but like, why did you want to talk about it on, on the internet? Well, thanks, gentlemen. Uh- I appreciate you having me on. Obviously, it's uh, always a great day to be on the myth, you know. But um, I guess uh, you know I have a background in military uh, history, military, you know, uh, doctrine, etc. But uh, the most important thing is it seems like, especially because we live in a merchant republic, and since 1945, the overarching emphasis in civilian life is that it's diver- divorced the responsibility of the citizen with the responsibility of the soldier. And, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, what is politics except coercion? And what is coercion, like, crystallized except military force? And so I always thought it was important, um, especially when I was in the military, I met a lot of guys that were glorified bureaucrats who were uninterested in war, uninterested in its pursuit, uninterested in the history behind it. And I figured there was like this unnecessary place where we needed to educate, especially the youth, you know, non-soldiers and as well as officers and leaders um, in, you know, the pursuit of warfare, et cetera. And so that's kind of why I thought it was so important to write about it, especially from a patriotic perspective, because the only times that you go on the internet and you see 
uh, you know, military endeavors. It's always about fighting for the military industrial complex. And if you ever read any of their books that they assign to, you know, uh, you know, military leaders that they're coming up, it's always weakness. It's always, uh, you know, servitude and like a very weak spirited kind of stuff. And I always wanted to give people something that was strong. Uh, came from the soul. So that's just me in a nutshell. I really do appreciate you having me on, brother. I appreciate that. Well, it, it's uh, it's an honor to have you on. I, I've been very impressed by the work you've been doing uh, on your own. I I take it you're a bit younger than us, and uh, I can already tell I think you're, you're going to do well based on uh, how quickly your, your Twitter following has grown and, and just also the quality of your content as well. Um, I think you know, you're driven and you have a good mindset and, and you're intelligent. And so uh, all those things are, are very appealing, I think, not just to me, but other people. So check out his channel if you haven't. Um, obviously, he focuses on on military topics, military history, things like that. And I think that was Hans uh, joining us. Um, Hans, can you can you hear us? Can, can you guys hear me? Yeah, if you could yes, turn sir. up your game, though, you're a little bit quiet. But uh, we were just doing an introduction. You you should be somewhat familiar, at least by memory, with with Lance. We wanted his show last time, so we just kind of did an intro for our audience. But tonight's topic, I think, we'll we'll get into the actual topic now. Now that Hans is here, is a little bit about a, a high level uh, realignment that might be going on between the superpowers. And first of all, who is a superpower these days? I mean, it used to be a unipolar world since the Soviets fell apart. But obviously, China has been making its way uh, up the economic ladder. And Russia has been uh, attempting to reassert itself, uh, at least politically. Uh, economically, they've been doing okay, but I have some numbers on uh, actually, they're, they're not very well off as they have never really been very well off, um, unfortunately, from their perspective. But uh, militarily speaking, uh, the United States and the Russians have the largest by far nuclear stockpiles that at least is publicly acknowledged uh, on the order of uh, like 10 to 1. Um, I think China might have uh, 100 warheads. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but it's it's in the mid-thousands for the Russians and, and Americans. And so with the conflict in Ukraine, obviously people are concerned about potential uh, Cold War returning uh, between the different ideologies and superpowers in the world. And I, obviously, the United States is is one of those. I would argue Russia is still one of those. And uh, China is arguably even more relevant than than Russia. But uh, with the potential for a Taiwan conflict after this Ukraine thing, Afghanistan sort of being rolled back on the American side, uh, the Russians might have been baited. They might have just seen on their own accord to uh, take their chance to reassert themselves. And I think the Chinese were wondering about Taiwan. But uh, let, let's start with... Um, Whatever you want to, whatever you think is most pertinent, Lance, because I'm just sort of a, a generalist here. You're a specialist. What do you think is the most pressing topic that our audience needs to hear about what's going on in the context of the superpowers? Well, I think the the most important thing to understand to set the foundation, the stage, so to speak, is the idea that we're no longer in a hegemonic or a dyadic kind of a competition, which is the old world, right? The 20th century, especially the Cold War, was characterized by two superpowers going at it. And by its, you know, you know, bipolar world kind of uh, competition, it was very stable. There are a lot of rules and, uh, you know, unspoken gentlemen's agreements between these, you know, major superpowers. And all of this has fallen away. 
especially the core competency of the State Department and the United States government has also gone away, especially since the mid-1990s. Um, it's atrophied significantly. But most importantly, we're entering a world we haven't been in since uh, the great power competitions of the late Victorian era. Now, this is a very different world to live in, especially because now we're becoming well well acquainted with, for instance, uh, non-state actors such as as you know your usual suspects but also increasingly uh both marxist and nationalist uh, undercurrents in all segments of society as well as of course a kind of um, multifarious emerging battlefield right so there's you know fifth generation warfare which just simply denotes the importance or the increasing importance of other spheres of conventional warfare which is includes for instance the cyber um, you know, area of operations, as well as the economic, as well as, you know, psychological operations, and so on and so forth. Everyone becomes a combatant, and everyone is neutral at the same time. And it becomes difficult to understand and, you know, measure the metric of power. And so in a world that's increasingly complex, it becomes increasingly competitive and unstable. And I think that's the, the premise that we have to understand um, going into this new century. What what is the um, what is the common understanding in the military part of the uh, the government with regards to the generations of warfare? Because I, I I'm trying to it was it Lind that came up with that, or I'm trying to think back a few years because I, I I learned about that maybe four years ago. Uh, the generations of warfare is that a commonly accepted concept, or is that something just on the internet that that people talk about? First of all, it, it's a commonly accepted. Uh concept William S Lind actually wrote the doctrinal um, understanding for the Marine Corps for as far as uh, maneuver warfare however he was kind of disowned because of his paleoconservative you know uh, sympathies and obviously the bias of the uh, Pentagon is exactly the opposite of his personal convictions would you say however, they're neoliberal how would you describe the Pentagon today uh, <laughs> hard he, one <laughs> he's, I, I wish I've, you know, I try to, I like the word communist because from a Nietzschean uh -oh. perspective, it denotes, yeah, I know it, it, it denotes something that's deeper and like more, more than just simply one ethnicity that is the usual culprit. Right. Yeah. However, I don't think it would describe everything that would be happening at the Pentagon. I think really a plutocracy really is what's happening is just mm. people are, are just greedy. I don't know, even know how to describe it, but I think people are liberals out of, um, convenience just in a Machiavellian sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's out of convenience. Yeah. They're, they're kleptocrats. They're, they're out for themselves. They're looking to steal. Um, that's unfortunate. You know, I, I was listening to something on the cold war era and I really, you know, wasn't very old for much of that. I, I wasn't alive, frankly, for mo most of the cold war, but the impression I got, and I was alive for some of it, and I, I knew people who served in the military and adjacent to the military and what you might call the broader military-industrial complex, and I, I did get the impression that people were sincere in wanting to defend the principles of America and the country itself. And I don't know if that's true anymore. And I, I think that's sad to hear this. Now, I could be naive in, in thinking that it was any different before, because obviously all the wars that this country has been involved in have had their share of profiteers and, and people looking to, you know, get a star on their shoulder. I knew a guy who, who served in Vietnam and he told me a lot of these you know, generals were just pricks, you know, they're just trying to get medals. But um, I, I don't know how different it is now versus before. Do you have any comment on that? I do. Um, so uh, if the audience is not aware, they should read uh, 
about face by Colonel Hackworth, and he has he details his personal experience from the early Cold War era, so 1946, 1947, all the way through the Vietnam War in 1975. Um, he was an outspoken critic of the military-industrial complex, and a lot of the issues that we face now are the same. And fundamentally, the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex found its root, uh, firstly, or at least came to its uh, strength during the early... You know, obviously during World War II, but it really came into its own in 1945 and 1947. Um, obviously, you know, through a, di a number of different un unfortunate connections between the Pentagon and uh, Capitol Hill. Now, um, you know, as far as people believing in the mission of America, you have to understand that, you know, what people believe to be America at any one time has kind of changed substantially. Um, and But it's only in, you know, the 1970s. 60s, 70s, and 80s did it really change so much, especially with a lot of uh, communist infiltration and you know the student body like uh, you know color revolutions that the Soviets were trying to wage in the United States. So that that's what my little piece about that you know. Okay, so how how did uh, the Pentagon itself actually come to adopt some of these uh, ideologies? It sounds like, well, at least my impression was that it was a, an external force to the military that was let's say, protesting at Kent State or wherever it was during the Vietnam era. And at the time, the military was was much against that. But it sounds like those types have actually gone into the military. And I've heard theories about, you know, this, well, this accelerated during Obama. He was like getting rid of a lot of the generals that, you know, didn't, he didn't approve of ideologically, which frankly is any president's, I think, right to do. Uh, and I don't know if that was changed with Trump. But how did that happen? Did, 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 did the people on the campuses get jobs at the Pentagon or, or how, did, how did the military change? So the people on the campuses obviously got jobs as journalists, principally, which are, are an extension of the intelligence agency, but mm -hmm. they became intelligence agents, right? And I think one of the most important things uh, anyone should read is uh, uh, Sean McMeekin's new book called Stalin's War. The most important thing about that book, aside from shifting the paradigm of, you know, Hitler starting the war to Stalin actually starting the war, um, the most important thing is that the amount of communist infiltration uh, within the United States that occurred during that, you know, pre-war, interwar year time to the point where there is, you know, uh, spoke, you know, self-acclaimed, uh, proclaimed a communist working in the State Department. Now, that's just the, you know, the, the tip of of the iceberg. I'm a huge researcher into Joseph McCarthy. Uh, the reason being is because only recently in 2017, the CIA has actually declassified a number of different documents, which uh, kind of detailed his uh, analysis into these different um, organizations. And fundamentally, the reason why you see the Pentagon changing its political orientation or ideology over time is twofold. One, in America has this weird tradition that it's servant leadership, that as if the military should be subservient to a civilian force, which is ridiculous. Two, um, is the idea that, so when you become obviously an officer, and especially when you become, you know, a middle-ranked officer, or even especially a general-ranked officer, you have to go through um, security clearances, but also you have to go through the good old boys club, and also you have to go through a senatorial uh, commission hearing. This is all kind of run in the background by originally the OSS, the CIA, and uh, increasingly the FBI, as, as you know. 
And uh, as time went on during the Cold War, of course, the FBI was taken over. You know, the CIA has always been uh, a you know predominantly strong, uh, you know, Trotskyite institution. And so, the reason why the Pentagon has become what it is is not because those college students were you know dumb enough to get into you know the military. Well, although some of them were. Um, it was because of the fact that they, over a number of decades, these intelligence services that were compromised, that were made of these, you know, obviously, you know, insidious kind of elements, were able to sieve through over time officers who were in political alignment with their own political wow. agenda. So yeah. the CIA so, was never, or perhaps it changed, but when are we talking about this happening? Is this like after 1991? like when the Soviet Union fell apart, that this accelerated or cause like, you know, HW Bush was CIA basically. And right. he oversaw the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so he, I don't, I don't gather he was a secretly a communist, but um, my impression actually from people who uh, have spoken about this, who used to work at the CIA publicly uh, was that he was campaigning while he worked at the CIA for his presidency. He never really cared. And that's my impression of that guy. But where, where did this, uh, when did this happen? How did the CIA turn into this? Or was it always like this uh, infiltrated communist organization, as you might put it? Oh, uh, prepare yourself. So, you know, uh, <laughs> well, we're before, pretty cynical on know, this show, but you know, we, we just don't know the details. Yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> I think we're not going to be shocked. So, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, 19, you know, 47 security act. Uh, I forgot exactly the, 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 the act's name itself, but you know, before that it was the OSS, right? And the right. OSS was comprised of a number of different Western, uh, faction communists, I mean, I don't mean like communist as a as a you know a term of endearment to liberals. I mean truly Trotskyite communists, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the the vein of, uh, uh, you know, not Chomsky, but uh, what's what's the Italian guy? I keep on forgetting his name. But I don't know, Gramsci. No matter what, yeah, knows, at the end yeah. of the day, get yeah, Gramscites. Yeah, Gramscites. Thank you. But uh, so a lot of people don't know, for instance, that uh, it was you know the OSS that was coordinating with, for instance, Ho Chi Minh in Indochina. To mm. fight against the Japanese. Well, at the time, Even yeah, we also were allied with the Chinese, so that that's understandable. Well, of course, but there are also alternative forces. For instance, the Emperor of, of Vietnam was one, and there are significant mm. uh, monarchist forces that could have been mobilized. However, mm. it was always the communists that took the most of our personal, um, you know, lend-lease and advisory missions especially right. indochina right and in china as well you know chiang kai-shek uh, the reason why we're defending taiwan now is because i mean frankly we just wanted to keep china divided especially in the cold of course. war of course same thing with but, korea same thing in you know, with, with asia in general i mean of course of course uh, but what i'm trying <laughs> to say is the oss and the cia are obviously are not monolithic it's not like saying like the entire thing was at one point just complete you know, over, overrun with, with communists. It, it was also a, a mixture of libertarians and, you know, obviously a good old boy Americans that were too simple or, or not committed enough to actually kind of purge the, these, you know, malicious uh, entities. And so over time, 
through works of nepotism and you know uh, subversion, they were able to hire their own guys and make sure there's okay. a glass ceiling for the American patriots. Over All right, time. so so let's let's try to simplify this. And obviously, this is a gross simplification, but just for purposes right. of you know a podcast and because we want to talk about <laughs> a few other things, if you could put a line graph together in your mind, and then we'll try to describe it for the audience of the percentage. So it's, it's from zero to a hundred, right. Of, uh, communists in the CIA starting in 1947 or OSS. And let's just start in 1947. Let's call the OSS the same thing as the CIA from 1947 to now, the percentage of communists in that organization went from what number to what number now? So did it go up? Did it go down? What are the numbers? And you know, from zero to a hundred. Uh, it, it started as like something around, you know, 40 percent and it mm-hmm. basically culminated into people it, both outspoken and self-aware to people that are partial to to their, I don't know, convictions to 75 percent. Wow. Of course, there are still CIA agents that are, you know, whatever. There's a whole bunch of, you know, narcissists in the CIA. It doesn't matter. But the, the point is that okay. right now it is completely kind of functionally taken. Okay, and and I'm assuming that's you know going to ebb and flow a little bit. But was there any like major change from that that trend line? Like in other words, did it did it drop down to twenty percent at some point and then spiked up and then came back to the seventy five, or is it just a straight line from forty to seventy seventy five? I think I think during the time that Joseph McCarthy was going through uh, the different government agencies and kind of. Of asking questions principally about, for instance, uh, the the percentage of homosexuals in different agencies. That's that's what he got into hot water for, and that's part of the reason why mm. he ended up uh, being persecuted because he was going through agency through agency until the CIA got touched, and then of course things mm. kind of go south for him. Um, but I would say, you know, he kind of kept a lid until after he got removed, and the McCarthyites and the kind of the quote unquote red scare became you know, synonymous with, uh, you know, a uh, conspiracy theory that things really kind of took off. So this is 1950s. If, if that makes sense. I would say so. Yeah, it was. Okay. The, it, it's the reason why 1965 was such a pivotal moment in American history. Okay. Okay. Is that, is that what is that? Kennedy? It was 63. What, what happened in 65? Uh, it's the, uh, the act that uh, changed immigration. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Things for instance, yeah, just and, want to clarify. Integration, for instance. And, yep. Okay. All right. Well, the CIA sounds like a pretty nefarious group. So uh, what are we actually doing here? Are we actually on the side of China, according to your perspective? <laughs> or are we uh, are we just like cynical uh, Machiavellian actors on the global stage to set it back to the, the superpower uh, setting? I, I think... I think at what, the what is the day, America to you today? Like, is it pro freedom or is it communist or what, what is America? It's an enigma wrapped in a mystery <laughs> solved by a riddle. You know, well, I mean? you know that's, who, that's you know, who I first said it. that, really right? Can't. Yeah. Churchill <laughs> about, about the Soviets. So that's, that's so right. we, we've come full circle, I guess. Uh, well, they're, they're a whole Indeed. another bag of worms over there. The British Isles. I mean, geez, what has happened to them? But I, I mean, I don't even know if they're relevant to bring up, but um, it's funny if you look at the, the World War II, we were just mentioning World War II before we started, but I mean, th- th- they were the British Empire. That was a, that was a bit, that was a superpower. Nobody, nobody doubted that, but boy, did that, did that thing fall apart. Um, 
And, you know, Churchill did a pretty good job, in my opinion, at least from their perspective of, of propping themselves up, you know, for as long as they did, frankly, because they're, they're just a little island, you know. But um, what happened between the end of the Cold War and now that sort of changed the geopolitics in your mind? I mean, obviously, the Cold War, things were kind of predictable in that, like, okay, the the salt two treaty would come up and they'd talk about nuclear weapons and it would be the Americans sending somebody to some neutral place in Iceland to talk to the Russians. And, and that, that, that was like the thing since world war two up until 1991, 92, basically. But since then the United States has kind of gone nuts in many different ways, but it's, it's engaged in the war on terror, the, uh, I don't know what we're doing now, but the war in itself. But what what happened during that time frame that kind of realigned things? And then we could talk about going forward. Well, I would say the world went through a period where, uh, you know, uh, there were wars, wars of reformation, conviction, and then it became Westphalia, and then everything became Machiavellian. And I think we're seeing the same transition where the 20th century was a century defined by the conflict of ideology. Finally, it reached a culminating point where ideology became solved in the favor of liberalism, obviously, a pinko kind of liberalism. And now we're finally into the stage where ideology is used pretty cynically and unseriously by everyone involved. I don't know if you've seen the Ukraine conflict, but you have Antifa types fighting with neo-Nazis on the side of the Ukrainian government against russians who are also have neo-nazis and also communists you know stalinists fighting each other so so. so why why did that happen because i think to answer my sort of previous prompt i think you can maybe help us get to that point and understanding what was going on in the 90s in russia what happened you know globally with the sort of globalization trends with china and the united states and and europe uh and the, the rest of the world frankly how do we get to Ukraine? I mean, what happened last year where you know, this thing actually got hot, this conflict? What what led up to that? I, I, like, honestly, this is probably the best conversation to have because this is kind of going to define what's going to happen in the next half century. But fundamentally, before 1991, there was a kind of very openly agreed to gentlemen's agreement that NATO wouldn't expand eastwards, right? And lo and behold, obviously it did. As we see, the majority of Eastern Europe has, especially Poland is a big one, has turned to NATO. Now, Ukraine, 2014 Maidan, uh, was part of a wave of different color revolutions that happened, not just in Eastern Europe, uh, which happened also under Belarus and Lukashenko, but Lukashenko liquidated all those elements, which, um, you know, the Ukrainian government wasn't capable of doing um, but also, you know, Arab Spring, all of this stuff is America ex- exporting its specific brand of liberalism mm-hmm. into the world, right? And so now what what is happening in the Ukraine? And the Ukraine is actually a long history in the war on terror for the CIA using black sites as well as developing, uh, you know, biological weapons um, and a number of different... Are you talking about elements. like interrogation centers? What, what do you mean by black sites? Yes, precisely. Interrogation and detention centers. So okay. uh, the way that the CIA gets around all those un- inconvenient rules about, you know, torturing prisoners, like, you know, cutting off their hands or something like that. Wow. Uh, what they do, what they do is they, they send them to a country that doesn't have that kind of legislation. And because the CIA is working outside the jurisdiction of the United States, it's technically legal. Hence the 
black site. Right. Um, obviously, there is also a number of different, you know, uh, connections with, for instance, uh, I'm sure you understand like the compromat kind of idea you have. People I, do I, I don't. What does that mean? Compromising things. So it's a it's a KGB Soviet term for having you know filmed someone back in the old oh, days. Oh, blackmail basically. It's like got dirt on them, like Epstein or something like that. Is that what you mean? Compromising Precisely. situations. Got it. And, yeah. Yeah, and the the Ukraine is the largest exporter of unfortunately minor sexual, you know, sexual slavery. Yeah, I've in, heard about in, that, especially in Europe and one of the world. So it's very connected, and all these things kind of touch one another, especially in the opium trade. So now going forward, the reason why Russia is so threatened geopolitically by the Ukraine and uh, having this kind of Maidan uh, revolution happening in Ukraine is because it fundamentally threatens the strategic depth of Russia. It's in the backyard of Russia. It is literally part of Russia until 1991, right? Like, I mean, obviously it was the Soviet Union, but before that was the Russian Empire and so on. And um, that's why the Russians have felt that the, ne- the you know the necessary application of a conventional military you know intervention there was so necessary because what happens if you know that country, let alone becomes a NATO state or even just simply a neutral one, it becomes a staging ground for saboteurs and political kind of infiltration into that very wide right. and large border with Russia. So, so that's obviously Russia, what they're worried you know? about. And I think anybody who's honest about this situation can understand that perspective. But I'm going to ask you, honestly, do you think they made the right move in trying to attack Eastern Ukraine the way they did? From their perspective. I think they made the only move. Okay. I think, I think, I think Putin was on the ropes it was they, he was on the ropes since 2008 since he you know messed up uh, the georgian intervention and i think that he was basically forced into a position that if he did not act his government would be compromised the next 20 years so he was doing the only thing that was sensible well, what if he invited what if he invited in the international pre- this is just brainstorming by the way i've never asked this to yeah. anybody who's got some knowledge about this stuff i've i've floated this to friends but you know they're just cocktail party type conversations but i'm asking <laughs> you this what if he cuz obviously the world at least the western world was a little bit uh, caught off guard not the, the intelligence agencies obviously but just the media portrayed this, I think, somewhat fairly as an incursion into Ukraine from Russia, as opposed to a defensive operation. And the Russians continue with this, uh, this concept of like a, I forget what they call it, but they basically view it as a defensive action. And I think the rest of the world views it as offensive from their part. But what if instead of doing any military operations, he basically said, look, um, these people who are in Eastern Ukraine are Russian. They want to be part of Russia. What if he invited in the international voting auditors or whoever it is and the press and said, look, we're just going to let these people vote. And if they vote to join Russia, they're part of Russia and we will defend them as Russians. Do you think that would have been a better move than what he did? Or do you think it wouldn't be possible uh, or it just wouldn't work? Uh, um, I think I don't think that I happened. Think, I th- to, to be frank with you, and, I, you know, obviously you're a very intelligent guy, obviously, but, uh, you know, I think people misunderstand how Machiavellian and utterly ruthless international politics is. Every single, that's fair. That's you know, fair. There, there's a Sudanese election that's contested by the so, United So you're saying States that you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it, basically, is your answer. No, it, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it, okay. it, it couldn't. It couldn't. And... It, 
it couldn't do, be done in good faith. It would never be done in good faith because these these powers are fundamentally, you know, at each other's throats. All well, the take time. take so, take Belarus for example. And also, the, 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 they were trying to have a uh, CIA. I mean, just be to be to be clear. My my suspicion is the CIA and the MI6 and whoever else is involved in this type of stuff was trying to support an opposition candidate in Belarus against Lukashenko. It was some woman. I don't remember her name, but you know goes to show you, you know, this is the, 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 the <laughs> roster that they draw from. It's some woman and not to disparage female politicians, but you know, Belarus is a fairly conservative country. And so I think to choose a woman, I think is intentional. I think it's, it's meant as a sort of undercut to the culture there. And it's not an accident in other words, but they, they tried to get her to win an election and Lukashenko basically, had to get involved, I think, from my my basic understanding, in the election system to skew it a little bit towards him. Now, maybe he legitimately won. He was basically just offsetting the the fraud that may have been committed. But do you think something like that might have happened if Putin did what I'm proposing? Or I don't know. I mean, I just what what would have prevented basically what I'm proposing? It's basically just letting the people decide. What would have stopped that? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I, I would. And it's asking a lot to to, to speculate, but I just this is why I'm asking you because I'm wondering about this stuff because I just don't know. And the press. So it's okay. one thing for reality, right? It's another thing to perceive reality, like hyper reality, right? And so you go on the internet, and the U.S. and Russia both are really good at misinformation and disinformation and inflating uh, false opinions and, you know, signal boosting ones to make it appear as though that's the popular one. So even if it were done to 100%, you know, 100% honest, good faith election uh, and the U.S. had an outcome or the, the Belarusians had an outcome that the U.S. didn't like or vice versa, they would present it to the press and to the people and the people would perceive it as having been, you know, faulty or rigged or so on. Right. And so so it really doesn't matter what actually happened. What matters is how it's perceived. Yeah, and to, to your argument, the same thing happened in, in Maidan in Ukraine, right? That this was this like you know protest that popped up out of nowhere, uh, and that was right. the complaint from so, Russia that the, the Americans yeah. were interfering in this stuff. Yeah, Yanukovych like basically, quote unquote, won, and of course the West has always said that you know these are faulty elections that so on and so forth there's you know government interference and fraud or whatever but I mean obviously it's true and I think it goes both ways both ways both you know parties are ballot stuffing both parties are you know lying yeah. I think that's the the thing that we're getting into is is Americans as good old boys like I think a lot of guys are very innocent and they believe in the you know truth of you know, their fellow citizens or something, but that's not how reality works. You know, it's not really how the rest of the world world works. To, to be honest, I, I think there America's was a time that, I, yeah, exactly. I think there was a time in America, especially where that was true, where there were more free elections. Obviously there was always shenanigans going on. I mean, the whole like Nixon Kennedy election was famous for being likely to be incredibly uh, manipulated, at least on that decisive last precinct or whatever in Chicago that tipped it over for Kennedy. But I think it's gotten worse. And I think we're starting to learn this in America, especially with 2020 and people disputing that election, uh, whether whatever your stance is, at least people I think on both sides would agree there was something, something 
something is not clear here at the very least. Um, okay. But taking a step back, um, a little bit, actually, I have, uh, oh, please. Have a couple of questions I wanted to ask, uh, our host here, uh, Lance, you started to mention, uh, an example related to Sudan. Um, and I was curious to hear what you had to say about that. That was, a situation I didn't get to follow as closely while it was ongoing. And I was hoping maybe you could elucidate a bit. What was sure. There. Absolutely. So it's actually really interesting and it's a little covered fact, but effectively the Sudanese conflict that's happening right now, which is a civil war, obviously, is uh, it's a conflict over this militia group called the Janjaweed militia. And they're based, they're, they're the guys that did all the Darfur stuff and whatever in the 90s, but they're part of the Sudanese uh, you know, military industrial complex or just military estate. What what's happening now is that the United States wants them out of the representing you know Sudanese government because of obviously human rights abuses and say what you want about the United States, but they do actually do care about this like they put a lot of suppositions on their humanitarian aid and economic aid based on you know humanitarian record or whatever. And so now the most important thing, the reason why it's being contested over is because the Russians are interested in flipping Sudan in their favor. They already have Libya. Now they want Sudan. And actually there are units of Wagner units, which are obviously Russia's PMC unit, as well as small units of Libyan uh, Sahara units fighting on their behalf to overthrow or at least force a political opinion that consolidates the Janjaweed into the military, the official military structure of the Sudanese government and thereby taking power. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think the actual geopolitical interest is in a place like Sudan? I mean, it, the control of Port Sudan and the control of the Red Sea to interdict, uh, for instance, the, the, the Suez Canal. It's absolutely mm-hmm. important. If you're able to place, for instance, a Chinese, uh, you know, ballistic missile, you know, anti-ship ballistic missile battery in that port or have a Russian element of, you know, naval assets or whatever, you're able to block off a major, uh, you know, point of of transit into the Mediterranean. So it's absolutely important. So you just conflated two very important countries, Russia and China. To what degree do they work together in your your mind? Uh, They... Both are frenemies, right? They, they hate each other and they love each other at the same time. Well, actually, that's wrong. They hate each other more than they hate us. However, the State Department, since Henry Kissinger, has forced them together by geopolitical necessity. It's a, an alliance of convenience, especially with them in Iran. Um, and, you know, their cooperation obviously is ramping up. I'm sure you're able to see that, for instance, the Chinese are laundering artillery shells through North Korea into Russia to help them in their war effort against the Ukraine. Um, but this kind of non, you know, uh, this military aid is going to escalate as well as the, you know, the the, the non, uh, how do you say, the, uh, the words escape me, but there's a whole bunch of kind of unofficial assistance that's happening between the Chinese and the PRC. And Russia's worst nightmare is that they're going to be the junior partner in that alliance. Yes. And that's why they're always in conflict with each other. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, well, I, just to give some specifics on this, 
after the sanctions were put on Russia with the, well, the latest round, I should say, uh, after the Ukrainian uh, physical incursion, not the political one, in 2022, the Chinese and Russians have been working more closely, economically at the very least, uh, because the Russians can't sell their oil to some of the uh, the Western allies. And the Chinese need access to oil. And they're also very paranoid about being cut off uh, through the Straits of Malacca and Singapore. And so I've always wondered about this, but I think it was just a matter of, is it worth the, the investment to build a pipeline across Siberia to transport oil and natural gas? And, and now it is uh, because the prices are higher and Russia needs to sell it. And that is being constructed. And what's also interesting to me from the Chinese point of view is the Chinese also don't want to become dependent on Russia and neither does Russia want to depend on China. So the Chinese are working with Pakistan to build another pipeline to the Indian ocean uh, or the Pakistani ocean, as they probably like to think of it, but uh, they have to get around India and guess what? It goes right through a disputed region of Kashmir. Now, I don't know if that was always the reason Kashmir is disputed, but I thought that was fascinating because it, it pulled in all the powers together. You got Russia, you got China, you got India, and the U.S. is sort of you know wanting to involve itself, of course. Uh, but I don't know if we have time, but I'd love to hear your perspective on on that like sort of corridor because Afghanistan was just you know this twenty year waste of time for the United States, and the Chinese are moving in there, and so that whole Central Asian component is also a factor. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that region is absolutely essential for infrastructure. I'm sure you've heard of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? You know, everyone has. Sure, sure. And uh, that's actually a major portion or part of bringing that plan to fruition, especially when it comes to securing overland trade lanes with their prime partners, i.e. Russia and Iran. The reason why is because, of course, the United States, say what you will about, you know, the American empire, it still has a very powerful and overwhelming naval presence, as well as its partners do, you know, and it's very capable. So in the event of a war or in the event of economic blockade, they need these alternative avenues of trade and, you know, military cooperation to make sure that they are able to hold on to the power that they've accrued over the last 50 years. So, you know, furthermore, I would like to add an aside here. You know, we think that India somehow is our friend, but let's remember that it's through India that Russia is laundering a lot of its oil to Europe, sure. as well as the fact that, you know, as much as India hates Pakistan and Pakistan hates China and all three of those guys hate each other, they all hate us more. And, you know, in the event of a war, India has actually, um, for instance, uh, shown its true colors by remaining neutral about condemning Russia in the uh, Ukrainian-Russian war. They've been pretty so consistent since the end of World War II on that. They, they used to be part of the non-aligned movement. Um, but I, I will perhaps, I don't know if I completely disagree, but I, I will say just to rank order the sort of alliances here. I will say that the Indians and Chinese are are less friends, I think, than the Americans and the Indians. Um, I do not believe that the Indians trust China and vice versa. And I think they, the Indians in particular view the U.S. as sort of a, a wedge against Chinese uh, rise uh, against their 
their rise. I mean, they're, they're both, you know, growing economically and China, I think population wise is not going to be pretty soon. And I think India is going to overtake them. But, um, I do think the Indians view the U S somewhat more positively than they do China. I don't know if you disagree. Yeah. I agree. And, and, and it's shown, for instance, in the, there's this avionics platform called the J10C, and it's a Pakistani-Chinese uh, cooperative uh, kind of uh, uh, technology-sharing program to create an air platform for export. Um, first, it was for the PRC to export it to Pakistan, but it's, it's, the J10C is supposed to be an international export avionics platform, right? And it's a fourth-generation uh, you know, uh, jet multi-role fighter. And, you know, you can see that and you can see, for instance, where India buys buys its military equipment or where it buys its uh, consumer goods. Well, they have a lot of Sukhois, right? Uh, and yeah. Russian, Russian they do, basically. But they also have, they have a whole bunch of weird stuff. They have mirages. They have a bunch of NATO patterns. <laughs> stuff. They no. have a lot of weird, it, I mean, it's India, but like, yeah, you know, it's right. as varied as their gods. But what I would say is, yeah, I would say that it does. You're definitely right, and of course, the U.S. and the India have sh- closer connections. But will does that necessarily mean India will stick out its neck for whatever imperialist no, no, you know aims no. NATO has? That's no. that's never yeah. been their personality. Indian people in general are generally kind of uh, shy about revealing their intentions. I don't think that's going to be any different on the on the national level. Um, in my opinion, uh, what do you think about this quad thing? I think that it includes, uh, the Australians, Indians, Americans, and maybe the Japanese. I, I'm trying to remember who, who's part of that. Have you heard of that thing? Uh, are you talking about the, uh, the, the naval, uh, treaty that has been going on between, uh, Australia, Japan, is it the Philippines and the United States? I think it's one of those Eastern. The, the U S and Americans are involved and I could be mixing up the, the name of this thing, but I thought it was four countries and it's basically this kind of mishmash of, uh, differing goals, but it's effectively a, uh, alliance against China <laughs> in, in that region. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware. I, I'm aware of what you're saying. It, I think I don't know how potent it will be. I don't know how potent or how public opinion will be swayed against China. Like to be frank with you, I mean, I mean, are you? Do you see your, you know, your average dormy wanting to go to Taiwan and defend Taiwanese no. democracy? No, no, no. no. Yeah, I, I don't really think it either. I think that's the the thing that a lot of these liberal politicians don't understand is that when you make your country multicultural, well, they have a multifaceted personal ethnic and you know political goals and well we we agree on that china but, but but wanting to fight the chinese in taiwan is different than having a tacit support of tariffs let's say or somewhat non-kinetic political arrangements between the the neighboring countries and the United States. I think most Americans would support that at this point, given where the media has been mm-hmm. directing them and the, the COVID stuff. I think some of that might've been a psyop against China, frankly. Um, not that I, not that I'm pro China for the record. It's just, uh, I, I view this as sort of moves on a chessboard. And I think generally speaking, the media is turned up the anti-China rhetoric in the past few years and I think Americans are generally on board with that, um, which is kind of rare well, given that it's the, uh, been a bipartisan thing. But Hans, please go ahead. Yes. Well, speaking of the uh, 
quad and this topic of, you know, will the American public be interested in fighting? Um, I don't think the U.S. military necessarily has to care whether the U.S. public is interested in fighting. Um, The American military, as Lance knows, has a massive Pacific theater presence. Um, It has, you know, 10 allies or more, depending on what you count, in the region. There's, you know, hundreds of millions of people that aren't even American that can be involved in this conflict against the Chinese. So Mm -hmm. I don't really see this as being a question of will the American public support it or not? Would that necessarily prevent some kind of conflict over Taiwan? I think that is not as relevant uh, necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the discussions with the Quad members, um, from what I've seen, are really have to do with subjects like um, shared air bases, um, the availability to convert potentially uh, Japanese and Australian civilian infrastructure into uh, temporary American military infrastructure in the event of a conflict over Taiwan, in case the U.S. military has to disperse its forces, it has to uh, has to rearm, it has to resecure its supply chain, whatever ultimately it is, in case the primary American naval bases are attacked through the, uh, the Chinese long-range missile systems. Uh, I think that the United States will be more than comfortable fighting uh, over Taiwan, you can see that the United States is very comfortable at least bluffing right now. Uh-huh. And is moving towards some kind of conflict. I don't really see a lot of reticence or unpreparedness from the American military uh, for this conflict. That doesn't seem to be the case. So, really, uh, do you mind opinion. if... Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, I, like, I think you're absolutely right. I just want to say I 100% agree with you, and I think the most part that you talked about was re- securing um you know the supply chain that's something yeah. the u.s military has been obsessing on since the 1990s there's this yeah. book called unrestricted warfare and it's written by this uh you know prc colonel in the people's liberation army it talks about making sure that they kind of infiltrate and take hold of these key kind of infrastructure but that's the thing that america is no longer who America was during World War II, which is the center of industrial production. And that's something that people don't understand, especially economists, is that Russia (laughs) is able to sustain a war, even though it has the economy on on a piece of paper the size of Italy. However, it is heavily industrialized and makes primary goods. It makes finished goods and industrial goods. And that's what's going to, I mean, whether people like it or not, that are super into tech at the end of the day, especially conventional war is intensely industrial and the U S and the rest of the West is increasingly getting away from having a substantial industrial base. Now, of course we can pivot back. We can, you know, reconsolidate our supply chain. However, the time between making a factory that's able to produce these things on mass takes a number of years, especially as, you know, technology advances. Even if you're able to do something like a Liberty ship version of a tank nowadays or, or like kind of some kind of munitions or smart munitions or something, at the end of the day, these factories take a number of years. And by that time, a conflict of that nature that China has been ready for and mm-hmm. has the industrial capacity, it has now Russia supporting her 
with the, the raw resources, especially oil that it takes to conduct naval operations, surface naval operations were absolutely important. That's something that the the American military cannot pull off as it stands. And especially the surface Navy in the United States Navy has been in severe disrepair, antiquated, and with a personnel that is increasingly demoralized and incompetent. In fact, you see the rate, for instance, of uh, at-sea naval drill collisions ha you know, skyrocketing in the last 10 years, people dying over this kind of stuff. And the... The PRC, I don't know if you've seen this, but they have not only gotten more competent and, for for instance, their ballistic missile technology is superior to ours. It's not even a parody. It's not even near peer. They're superior to ours, right? Um, but they're also how do you how do you know that? Not not, not to so, not to argue. I just do you have do you have uh, supporting evidence for that? So. So my per my supporting evidence, of course, is like you go to, for instance, the uh, U.S. Naval War College, and the okay. U.S. Naval War College since 2015 um, has been talking about specifically anti-ship naval battery systems um, and hypersonic missiles. Now, the United States hasn't invested in hypersonic missiles and has kept its harpoon, uh, old 1975 kind of cruise missiles because of the fact that we thought it wouldn't be necessary to have that kind of uh, uh, faculty. Hmm. However, we're seeing uh, that hypersonic missiles in, for instance, Ukraine in the Russian war is absolutely essential, especially when you want to take out strategic targets and faster than they can react to them. And in this case, in a war that is in Taiwan, is going to be heavily naval. And it's part of the reason why the Marine Corps has been switching over to a force design 2030. It's because precision munitions and ballistic missiles, uh, ballistic, ballistic missiles will take primacy in a conflict like that. And it'll be fundamentally something fought from a computer and, you know, like really kind of standoff munition type situation. It's not going to be, you know, like World War II Pacific campaign where, you know, there's guys with bayonets like right in each other's faces. It's going you're going to get either squash someone over the horizon or you're going to get squashed and you're not even going to know what's happening. So that's that's kind of the situation that's happening now. And I think maybe on paper, the Pentagon's more sanguine should be but i think inside they know that they can't really because the issue is that the the prc has a number of these anti-ship hypersonic missile batteries based on its mainland on top of its ability to have guided missile destroyers and submarines and so on uh, to help augment their naval campaign that will involve the blockade of taiwan but i've gone so far if you have any questions or anything yeah you I, I, I have a direction. lot of questions um adam do you mind if i uh, go ahead continue with my last thought yeah um what do you think would be sort of the uh, necessary infrastructure that would be needed for the united states to develop its hypersonic missile capacity more because this is a topic that has come up in the last few years last year in particular there's been some very public and high profile tests done by both China and the United States and by the Russians with hypersonic weapons. What What is the disconnect? Why is the United States falling behind? And why did the United States not invest, in your opinion, uh, sooner? What was the What was the calculus there, if you know? And, and I have a so follow-on question real quick. How much, how much of this public knowledge that we're behind China is disinformation? Is it possible that they're just letting this out so that they lull China into a false sense of confidence? I think that's a possibility. I don't know, but I'm just wondering what you think. 
but please talk about so, that. So as far as the first question, so there's three separate questions, right? The first question is about why is it that we're not able to keep pace? Um, it's very possible that we've actually developed the capability and that we're holding it close to our chest. I mean, I the one thing I'm very sanguine about is the R&D capacity of the United States and the Pentagon to create like mm. cutting edge technology. I, I'm not even going to argue that we don't have it. We probably publicize that we don't have that capacity, but we do. I mean, there's so much stuff that we don't even know about that's like 20 years ahead of the cutting edge, right? Two, um, you know, what would it take to industrially make this? To be frank with you, I'm not well read as far as the industrial process of making something as advanced as like a ballistic missile. Uh, from what I, re what I remember from the Cold War, you know, the Pershings and so on, um, that's a completely different <laughs> tier of militaria that that like it would be different from a hypersonic missile because the hypersonic missile nowadays, not only is it hypersonic in itself, which has significant aerodynamic challenges, but it is also able to uh, incorporate AI, you know, computer systems and change direction while in flight and avoid, uh, uh, you know, counter battery fire or whatever. And so third question is, is, is America going to, is it really kind of luring the PRC into a false sense of confidence. I think the best way to answer that is what does America have to gain from that? Because ultimately, if it is the case that the PRC invades Taiwan, I mean, we don't want them to invade Taiwan. And I think that's why we're saber, rat saber rattling because what's in Taiwan that we need the most, not just civilian economy, but the military industrial complex is the uh, microchips, right? And that, that is so hard to place in any other country and so america's interest is not having the prc invade and if the prc does invade for instance if it is the case that we want to lure them into an open confrontation first of all i don't know why we would do that because that's two nuclear armed forces battling over what china considers to be sovereign territory we have to remember that taiwan to them is like as if texas left and we're fighting over texas you know what i mean and so uh, I, I think that just by a political calculus, it makes no sense to lure them into a false sense of security. Um, because if, if they felt secure, they would be stepping up their support for Russia. If they felt secure, they would have already invaded. So it mm. clearly is in the best interest of the United States to ward off any kind of PRC aggression to stave off the amount of time it would take for us to establish microchip in industrial uh, capacity which we're trying States to do yes exactly so, so what, what if so what if that why. was what if that was accomplished do you think the calculus then changes to the pentagon wanting a another cold war or <laughs> a hot war a world war three or do you think they would never want that i think i think the pentagon always loves a good war right they yeah. want they always love a good check so they always want war but um i think as far as if they're able to accomplish a microchip industrial capacity in the United States or somewhere else in the Western Hemisphere, I think it wouldn't change. I think we'd still want to pick a fight. We'd pick a fight because it would make us money. Okay. And, and I know that sounds really bad or like maybe sim simple, but I think it really comes... I think people overestimate the the mental faculty of like these generals <laughs> or the the motives of these people I, I think you have to understand that these the motives of these people is very simple they just want money and they like war they like playing with gadgets and like right. 
it's messed up, but that is really the truth by large, by and large. Are, are you must be, but are, are you uh, familiar maybe with the inner workings of an organization like the Rand Corporation, which during the Cold War basically did these war game simulations uh, for the Pentagon? And if you really want to do it right, I mean, Napoleon said, just to paraphrase, basically, like war is won by logistics. And to really do it right, though, you have to incorporate, as you were mentioning, the industrial base of your fighting force. I mean, it's not just you have X number of soldiers because X divided by a certain you know positive number is going to be your future fighting force if you don't replenish them. Like you're going to lose tanks, you're going to lose airplanes, you're going to lose missiles. So you have to produce them. So you have to have an industrial base that can keep up with your attrition rate. And then hopefully it's faster than your enemy's attrition rate. Uh, so I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure this is fairly classified, but have you actually seen any numbers on if we actually went to a full-scale war? How long would our uh, production uh, keep up, or would we have to expand it? How long would our inventory keep up, or would we have to stockpile before we went into things? You know, you hear these snippets of numbers about, like, Russia's running out of artillery shells. We're running out of uh, whatever the, the latest missiles are. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but the ones we're giving them, not not the, the Stingers, but whatever we're giving them now. Patriot. Patriots. No, it's the, the other one. The, the, I know the Patriots, but the um, they have another missile. The Javelins, I think. Um, but okay. we're running out of those because we have like a it's a three year lead time to make the things, and which is absolutely asinine. But you know, World War Two. I mean, it was a simpler war technologically, at least, and the country also was obviously much more industrialized. We didn't have these container ships dumping off manufactured goods from China. Uh, we, we actually made it in the Midwest. We made it in California. We made it everywhere. And that doesn't exist as much anymore. Now, we do have trade alliances with Canada, with Mexico, with, with Europe. Part of the American empire is basically giving production to its allies in order to keep them in the fold. This is not just my opinion. Peter Zihan talks about this. But I think it's pretty clear that that's kind of a bribe. I mean, they did it with the Japanese, did it with the Germans after World War II, uh, and we've run huge trade deficits with these countries, I think, in order to encourage them to like America so that you know they kept jobs at home and then they'd sell us stuff and they wanted us around for that reason. And we tried to do it with China, but it's sort of backfiring because the Chinese are playing by their own rules. And, you know, again, you know, not, not to dispute their right to do that, but they are somewhat of a rival, and so we have to think again about the strategy of moving our production. But have you seen any hard numbers on this? Like how long would our, our country last? Like could the Navy continue to fight if it ran out of, uh, I, I saw a number from uh, some video that was citing the Center for Strategic something or other, CSIS.org. They have these maps about the Ukraine. You might be familiar with it. Um, even if you don't know the name, you've probably seen them. But they're pretty famous. Um, they put out a number that we're, we're deficient in our uh, tanker fleet. The, Na the U.S. Navy's tanker fleet, in the Pacific at least, is about 35% deficient in terms of what you'd need in a, in a, in a fighting scenario. So that's just one example. But I don't have all the numbers. I mean, if you're going to fight a war, you have to have everything in front of you. It's a huge spreadsheet, basically. And I don't know what those numbers are. But my intuition is that you're right. We don't have that industry anymore. I've been complaining about this for years, as we have generally on the show. But do you know specifically, like how long would we last? Or would we have to build up our chip capacity as we've been doing 
somewhat recently with the chips act and whatnot. Intel's building a huge fab and, uh, in Arizona, they're making Taiwan semiconductor do the same thing, but it's not just about ships. I mean, it's also about the simpler things. Do you, do you have enough plate steel? Do you have enough, you know, to put on a, on a tank? Do you have enough, uh, production lines to, to make M1 Abrams, you know, in Taiwan, it's going to be a little different, a bit different than a, a war in, in Europe, but have you seen numbers on this stuff? Like, and where, where are you seeing that? Or do you have just an intuition on the production side of things? So, um, how do I say this? I have, I see numbers. Yes, I have. Do I believe the numbers I, I was allowed to see? No, because, you know, as you go up in clearance and whatever, I think every country, This you could say this about every country, I'm not revealing anything new. Um, they have strategic supplies, especially from the Cold War, um, that are probably untapped. Now, do I know this for a fact that the U.S. has this? I don't know. Like, I don't know personally anything about it, and I wouldn't want to get my, myself in any legal trouble. But what I would say is this, is like, um, I think the U.S., just like the Soviet Union, were surprised how much, how many tanks, for instance, uh, the Russians are able to kind of, you know, bring out of its sleeve, or like how many artillery shells it's about able to like take out. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible to believe that you know, America has a lot of capacity or capability that we don't know of, and I don't know of personally. I think a lot of the fear around, you know, oh, uh, if we lose Taiwan. We're not going to have any more electronics. Uh, A lot of that's incredibly overblown. Um, Taiwan really only became somewhat crucial. Not very crucial, but somewhat. Last 15 years. With a fraction of the manpower, available resources, and usable land. Um, Has to import everything effectively to do so. Did so at great cost as basically recenter the entire economy of the island around this one industry. Um, most of the lithography machines are not made there. Yeah, the ASML. Of the, a huge amount of the equipment that they use outside of ASML technology are not made there. And additionally, a large number of the R&D engineering takes place all over the world, in Singapore, the United States, in the U.K., I think that the Taiwanese would like you to believe mm-hmm. that it's the end of the world if uh, something happens to them. I think the United States is more than capable of taking over a huge amount of the foundry business within 10 years. Is the CHIPS Act working out well? Seems to be. I mean, from what I can tell, there are a record number of new chip fabrication facilities being built in the United States. Mm-hmm record number of new factories being constructed um, huge amount of capital investment in the american steel industry going on right now so there's definitely a tremendous amount of capacity and availability to do this and adam mentioned tsmc is effectively being migrated to the united states anyways so all of their intellectual capital is being moved here whatever they have is just going to be moved here i think that there's a very real possibility that the actual useful Taiwanese who are members of TSMC and other companies are just moved to the United States, much like, you know, loyalists in South Vietnam after the end of the Vietnam War. They were just moved here. They were settled and they were given jobs or they were given things to do. And that was it. 
and it wasn't some like horrible catastrophe at the end of the day you know the united states was able to bounce back from it and, you know within 10 years there was a lot of you know similar sort of fears around the end of south vietnam our position in the pacific is compromised our rubber supplies are gone mineral <laughs> supplies are gone you know it was you know but people were seriously freaked out about these same things and it was a doomsday you know nixon had to deal with every businessman in america having a meltdown over this idea that all this investment was gone and the generals were freaked out and 10 years later it's tell vietnam what like nobody cared the united states just adjusted so I I don't I don't I've never really understood this fear around you know Taiwan oh we lose it there won't be electronics for for the rest of our lives I think this is I think this is very silly I think this is an elaborate very elaborate you know pressure campaign by the Taiwanese to make you think that they are crucial to the functioning of the planet and yes they weren't 15 years ago yeah <laughs> they were they were literal nobodies. 20 years ago for the mm -hmm. most part they were making shoes right toys these these people are these people are not that important not to diminish them in well way, but they are not that per capita they're impressive but on the scheme of things i think you're absolutely right i think all the design talent is still outside of taiwan that, taiwan has processed I, I talent that, and which is important but it's not as important not is, even close why, to, to this, design and yeah. the capital equipment importance of what asml does and tokyo electron and uh, applied materials all these other companies are not taiwanese all taiwanese knows how to do is manage yield so yeah we're intel they're, they're not as good at it samsung they're not as good at it but you, we're talking about a difference between getting 50 percent of your wafer manufacturing as quality chips that you can use in a product versus 90 percent that's not, I think what they want you to believe is you're going to have zero chips. That's bullshit. It's going to be less efficient, but all they do is make I stuff. Don't even, I don't even think it'll be less efficient. I think that the costs will go up for a few years. Well, that's efficiency though. Be, there will be a tremendous, yeah, okay, a few years. There'll be a tremendous opportunity. And if there are, if the theory is that there's all these Taiwanese, they can only do it there. If there's a war going on, first of all, the smart ones are going to be getting out six months ahead of time. Mm -hmm. They're going to quit their job. They're either going to work for TSMC headquartered in the United States or Singapore, or they're going to work for an American company or some other company. They're going to leave very quickly. The people who are going to be left in Taiwan, the equipment that's going to be left in Taiwan, are going to be people that didn't have a way out, but they're not people that are actually contributing for the most part to this you know, supposedly crucial semiconductor industry. So again, I don't, I don't see. I've never really bought this, this idea that it's like it's some strategic linchpin the United States is gonna have to worry about is you know where are the chips gonna come from. I, I don't, I don't see that happening. I mean, I think in the run up to the war, there's gonna be a tremendous amount of giant, you know, container ships. They're gonna act like moving trucks, <laughs> and every single piece of valuable electronic equipment is going to be moved to California. I mean, very, in very rapid succession, they're, they're going to move. Or, or put them on, an, on a C5 galaxy, because honestly, I wouldn't want the Chinese sinking those things. We're going to be, we're going to strip that island drive before, before the mainlanders get there. I guarantee it. There's not going to be anything left for them to take. 
I mean, and then you know, they can fight over an empty island full of, you know, ugly buildings and, and poor people. But that's that's all that's <laughs> going to be left. I, I don't I don't I think see you're being slightly characteristic of, of the, uh, the Taiwanese. They, I, I agree. Architecture is not maybe their strong suit, but it's a very clean country from what I've heard. <laughs> I mean, the, the <laughs> ostensible the ostensible reason why we care is is different from the real reason why we're going to war over right, ta- our yes. Taiwan. One right, it's just about power maximization. We want sure. to be back to the, uni- the real the, unipernal the, world. Go ahead. Well, the real reason, too, is is just it's. I think it boils down to very basic naval strategy. Like we cannot allow the Chinese to get outside into the into the Western Pacific. It just is not going to happen. The United States has made that very clear since the Cold War. The Chinese are bottled in to their little zone and they are not allowed outside of it and -hmm. if they take taiwan they will be able to punch out i don't i think that the the concern over the chips masks like something very basic which is just not allowing them into the western pacific they're they're not allowed out i also wonder if the chinese and the americans want to keep this current situation going for as long as possible and i'll be more specific I read a pretty good analysis um, on our former host, um, Social Matter, once about the uh, reason why we keep South Korea and, in a way, North Korea around. It it justifies the presence of the American military in that region. Similarly, Taiwan does that in that region a little bit further south. Uh, it, it helps solidify our alliance with Japan and from the Chinese perspective, they kind of like having this like cause celeb for the people to rally around to support the central government, but never actually really consummate that because it, it would actually remove the real arguable reason is that they just want more power for from the people to the central government. I, I don't know. I, I see reasons like to not even do anything, but just to keep like the rhetoric going. And, and this is like a, a common trope and. um Orwell's books, you know, 1984, uh, you know, they would always like switch, you know, well, we're at war with this country. Well, now we're allies, you know, we're going to go to war with these guys. <laughs> it's basically just to keep everybody in support of the government. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, how do you quantify that? How do you put probabilities on it? I don't know. But uh, the, the one thing I will say against that, though, is that I think Xi Jinping is kind of a different animal than the previous premiers who are, in my opinion, mo- more focused on the economy. This guy seems to be possibly a little bit different. I wonder what your read on that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's Machiavellian, I would say it's just Orwellian setup, first of all, but also do you think it's wrong and what do you think about G and who cares what our president thinks? He doesn't even remember where he is. But I think, uh, right, exactly. Um, I think it's important to emphasize how much I dislike communists, right? But when I observe people, for their you know virtues and vices and so on, I think I do it from a pretty impartial view. I think Xi Jinping, as much as I dislike the PRC and so on, um, I think he's an incredibly capable and cutthroat statesman. I don't know if you were tracking in like 2020 or you know uh, 2019, he led this massive liquidation of his uh, political opponents. Anti-corruption. And I'm, they always call yeah, it that, by yeah. the way. 
Of course, of course. And, um, you know, it was actually pretty interesting because he's the first premier that was able to consolidate control in the way that he did with total control since Mao Zedong. And that's no exaggeration. Um, fundamentally, I think that Xi has an instinct for uh, quote-unquote imperialism, if that makes sense. He has, uh, and he doesn't just want to take Taiwan. Taiwan is probably incidental to what he envisions China to be. Fundamentally, I think what he, you have to understand where Xi came from. His parents, I believe, were arrested by the Communist Party. His father was, like, at you least. Know, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and you know, he, he was, you know, I guess uh, a product of the Cultural Revolution. And so do I think he's a, a you know, a, a doctrinaire communist? No. Who he is is fundamentally a Han Chinese man who understood that the calamities of his personal life and the calamities of his nation happened due to weakness. Mm-hmm. And that he wants a you know resurgence of who they were, and just like any virile and self-assertive people, right. they want to assert themselves upon the world. And so I think what we can see from China is a new pattern of a kind of cynified Western imperialist kind of idea of the future. And I think that what China really wants is the world to revolve around them in a celestial way. You know I think what I mean? They called and it the Chinese dream. Of, as a as a yes. opposed to the American dream, and I yes. think they're trying to pitch that to the Belt and Road members, and you know, look, we we actually support the middle class, unlike the Americans who move their factories to <laughs> other countries. In a way, I kind of agree <laughs> with that, but it's like uh, I think America's strategy is a little more sophisticated. But go ahead. What you say, Hong? Has this Belt and Road Initiative oh. succeeded? I think Pakistan, um, Russia, maybe, but you know, it's a good question. Where has it? Uh, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Central Asia, Central Asia, huge. Yeah. Kazakhstan. I know that doesn't seem like much, but that's a direct link to to Iran specifically. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm not. I'm not underplaying it. I'm. I'm genuinely curious. Like after the Sri Lanka meltdown, it seemed like the the entire project was potentially at risk, and there was some pushback from the Indonesians and bunch of infrastructure but are, are they actually taking this central asian investment seriously is this is this sort of their their larger goal is to somehow link up with the iranians i yes and i think their prime goal right now is focusing on this what they call the string of pearls which is a collection of commercial and military naval bases around the indian ocean uh the horn of africa and down through south africa and, uh, you know, I think that's what they're focusing on the most right now, because maritime trade is so essential to China as opposed to, you know, overland trade. Um, however, the coming conflicts of the future will probably see them doubling down on, on the Belt Road Initiative. Um, we saw during 2020 and 2021 that they completely stopped all development of highways, uh, you know, uh, in, in the multilateral c- countries that are, are cooperating with China. So it probably is a secondary importance to uh, establishing the naval bases that they're building. Like, for instance, in Mozambique, Somalia, Eritrea, and so on. Um, That's probably their main focus, their main emphasis right now. Mm -hmm. I had heard about their investments on the eastern side of Africa. I did not realize they were in Mozambique. That's in the east. Yep. Oh, wow. That was a geography mistake there. Well, then... Yeah, it's it's adjacent to Madagascar. The Horn of Africa. Uh, what what is the 
what is the idea for investing in Mozambique? What is the ultimate goal for for something like that? So is it just to add a waypoint well, for I'm, a wider African naval strategy? It's uh, it's not even just simply a waypoint. For instance, a ref- they're fundamentally an oil-based navy, right? Um, even their aircraft carriers that they've created recently are oil-based. They're not, you know, wow. they're diesel-powered. No they're not nuclear. But there's a reason why. Because uh, the future of maritime warfare will not be aircraft carriers. <laughs> That's fundamentally a yeah. fact. Missiles. Aircraft carriers <laughs> have developed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, aircraft carriers are more about power projection during times of peace or expeditionary warfare type settings. Yeah. Now, take, for instance, the Horn of Africa. Um, they do. They conduct a lot of anti-piracy raiding, but uh, most importantly, what they do is, for instance, uh, there's a pattern of dealing with China and a pattern with dealing with the U.S. and Russia, obviously. But let's talk about the difference between America and how China um, talks to these, you know, African countries. First of all, America offers economic aid and a lot of like this kind of weird, um, not really hard to grasp kind of aid to these countries and they demand a lot of things for instance free and fair elections and women's rights and a whole bunch of suppositions on american aid now the chinese come in they're very like cut and dry about a deal and what they say is like hey we'll give you a loan of this and uh, in exchange we will lease a port you know from you and develop it for free and it'll be ours right and of course as a matter of course these african countries always default and so what the chinese do is it's kind of loan sharking take, take it over and they establish a yeah they, they the lease turns into permanent territory of the prc and then they build you know a massive you know industrial you know naval colon, colony almost and i mean you should see these things in somalia there's this it's funny because they cordon off a whole sector of what the port is and then they bring a whole bunch of workers from the mainland yep. and they all live within this small little cordon section but it's huge and it's massive and they throw up these things and and the reason why africa likes working with china is because they don't put all these weird moralistic reasons on on their aid and also they give hard things so for instance they build physical like uh countries capitals or highways or this or that they they build real things tangible things as opposed to you know money or whatever that inevitably becomes bribes yeah. or gifts or whatever yeah empire of dust i'm sure you've seen that it's, uh, yes. I, don't, I don't know yeah. why that guy was there but i'm sure it's uh, related to what you're thinking of um you mentioned to me before we started uh the book stealth war do you want to talk about that yeah, I, I think it's uh, one of those most important things because, uh, you know, when I was in the military, it's one of the things I try to tell my peers to read because everyone knows about the lobbies that are in the United States. Mil- well, it's really funny. The the officer class doesn't really know about the lobbies except for, of course, the Pentagon. Um, but uh, as far as foreign entities lobbying our government, Capitol Hill, the PRC numbers almost, I think it's number one at this point. Um, and it's bipartisan. More than thing. Israel? So this book was, uh, yeah, well, I didn't want to touch on that, but you know, there's, you know. They're in, they're in a league of their own, too. but of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, of the other ones. Um, but let's say, for instance, uh, PR, so this book, Stealth Wars, written by Brigadier General uh, Robert Spaulding. Uh, so it's not just some kind of loon on the internet. It's a guy that has inner workings and names names. For instance, Mitch McConnell, for instance, is 
married to the daughter of this ma massive oligarch of the PRC, you know, massive industrialist. And for those of you that don't know, to be successful in business in a country that is like communistic or like very heavily centralized, you have to have deep political roots. You don't just become that. You have to have the right, you have to grease the right hand, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think so, I saw somewhere like the you know, uh, like the, the business uh, elite in China, like nine uh, percent of them or something, are communist members, or maybe nine percent of the whole country is a communist uh, party member. And you can just extrapolate from there that it's probably a higher percentage than the business elites, uh, the representation, because the reason the communist party uh, has all those people is they're trying to recruit the best talent smart. I yes. mean, they're, they're trying to get the best people, the best and the brightest. And so, in order to control the destiny of your country if they're under that sort of system having those alliances with the companies makes complete sense i mean it's a corporatist system um it's it's communism but it's also it, it has an understanding of capitalism that frankly most americans don't ironically and not just my opinion but it's it's different and and you're right it, it's very influential and, and relevant. And I don't know if you follow uh, Alibaba. It was like the most uh, publicly traded Chinese company in the New York Stock Exchange. And that guy basically pissed off, pissed off uh, Xi Jinping. And so he's out. So, yeah, you, you got to play yeah. ball. <laughs> Jack Ma. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. I, I saw that. I, I was like, holy crap. But, uh, you know, just bringing it back to this book, I think it's important to note how subverted the – American polity is by the PRC. I mean, it's not just uh, politicians being bought off or being corrupted or espionage. It's also, for instance, at every major university, there's this thing called the Confucian School, where they, and for those of you who don't know, universities are the center of our R&D capabilities. So they do a lot of espionage and they police, for instance, their own PRC citizens in in uh, foreign countries. I remember going to a Chinese history class run by this teacher uh, that was obviously a Confucian, you know, whatever, basically a commissar. And I remember seeing all every single uh, PRC uh, foreign exchange student there saying exactly the right things at the right time. You know what I mean? I, it was the weirdest thing ever, but, um, you know, I can confirm not, not to that explicit level, but I can confirm the presence of mainland Chinese at the higher rungs of us education. Um, I've said before, I went to a decent college and especially in the engineering departments, um, it's almost all Asian. Uh, and it's a terrifying statistic to a young American to come to grips with the fact that our openness is leading us to disaster 20 plus years down the road or whatever, you know, it's going to take, but eventually these people, I mean, they've been conducting industrial and technical espionage for, for decades now. Uh, and these, these kids, they'd sit in the back, they wouldn't speak a lick of English and they, you know, cheat on their homework by speaking in Mandarin to each other. And the teacher wouldn't know what to do, but it was like unreal just how many of them there are. And I don't know if Americans get it. I don't, I, I, obviously they don't, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, being polite here and giving them the benefit of the doubt, but it, it's a big threat. And that, that's the sort of concept of this book. It's like they are waging warfare, unrestricted warfare as that other book, the Chinese book actually calls it. Uh, but they're not telling you, um, it, it's, it's, it's right. scary. In Western parlance for the, for, for the reference, it's, 
but you know, if it's fifth generation warfare, we just call it different here, but it's, it's part of their doctrine. And I mean, you should see, for instance, in the NSA, there's regularly like, a, you know, a, a PRC foreign national conducting espionage in the highest ranks of the NSA getting caught. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of those agents that are not caught, that are, you know, actively evading capture. And so it, to say little of, for instance, uh, the Chinese buying arable land, like you've said before, we got on here and all the different things. And, and for instance, even our weapons manufacturing and for instance, even to the gunpowder, for instance, is controlled by the PRC. So there are a lot of issues that the United States is coming to grips with. And fundamentally, liberalism is the, the it's the, you know, HIV in our minds. And I, I know a lot of people think being naive in America is like our virtue. It's a, it's a good thing to be naive. It's not good to be cynical and doubt people and be open-hearted. But I think that's what's going to lead us to the slaughter, the dumb cow-like American value of being naive and wishing, you know, believing that everyone else has uh, goodwill as we have to have. Well, it, it, it can be, be summed up. It better... can be, be summed up very simply. Uh, Game theory, you know, the, the prisoner's dilemma, the most famous example of game theory, John Nash. Okay. Beautiful mind. If nobody knows what the prisoner's dilemma is, please, please just look on the Wikipedia article of like what, what it is. Cause it's basically encapsulating what Lance is talking about here is the reason people support the openness, the, the classical liberalism is under the right conditions. I believe, and I think other people believe, and you can even argue it's proven in statistics, if you look at economic growth and stuff like that, I mean, my stupid moniker, Adam Smith, is a classical liberal. Provided you don't have cheating going on, being honest, keeping your word, and being loyal is actually the best system you can imagine. The problem is if somebody comes in there and cheats. So the classic setup for the prisoner's dilemma is there's two guys that are brought in by the police, and they're both being held under charges for some crime that they both conspired to commit. Well, what the police do is they try to divide and conquer and they try to get one guy to rat the other guy out. And the way they do it in this setup, at least, is they tell the one guy in one room, hey, you know, your friend over there, he just ratted you out. You better rat him out, too. They're probably lying. And if they are lying, the guy that stands firm and says, no, screw you, I'm not going to rat him out. And then flip it around. The other guy in the other room does the same thing because the cop just told him his buddy over there in that other room lied and, or didn't lie, but he, he ratted him out. If he stands firm, they both get off. So the best outcome is actually cooperate and not cheat. The problem is right. if your buddy rats you out and you don't, you get the worst punishment possible because all the charges get dumped on you, not the other guy. And so the Chinese, the Russians, they, for whatever reason, cultural, historical their countries are they behave like this they they screw each other over constantly they cheat they they steal from each other and so they they behave that way when they come to the west and they meet these people that were brought up whether it's because of christianity or because it's just the way it is we don't really know but americans are way more honest and and so they get taken advantage of and so they're the sucker in room b that holds tight while the other guy rats him out. And the equivalent of that is in economic warfare is you're basically, you're stealing intellectual property. Uh, you're, you're lying about, you know, your, uh, 
selling music, you know, in China where, you know, it's got some kind of like Warner Brothers stamp on it, but you're just pirating the thing like Microsoft Windows is constantly pirated over there. It's just examples are writ large, but they, they come from a culture where cheating is almost like expected. I knew a Russian guy once that uh, told me like in Russia, uh, if if you're not cheating, the teachers think you're stupid. Okay, so you, you just imagine it's the same thing in China, and and it's so imagine coming to America where everybody's like, oh, we're you know we're we're open, we're going to be nice, you know, the 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 pickings are easy. So the the problem though is that I don't want to lose the good things about being open and honest, and you know, Warren Buffett talking about the virtues of America. He's not completely wrong, but he's he is kind of naive because the, the competition is not playing by the same rules. So I, I sort of rambled on, but I think that if you want to prove it mathematically, you know, and, and not just like be in doubt, I mean, game theory does that for you. And it's, it's a beautiful setup because it actually explains like why this stuff is happening in a very condensed, even, clear to understand way. I will even do you one further, you know, Putnam's construct theory. Go on. And so it talks about this specifically about the homogeneity of a, of a nation and correlating it with uh, high trust or low trust, which is what you're kind of trying to get at with, uh, you know, game theory, right? Uh, prisoner's dilemma and so right. yes the reason why we have high trust is because fundamentally in the past we perceived each other as family right in group preference because we were an in group now fundamentally we have shifted to an empire status and that's why the han chinese for instance and the russians which are fundamentally imperial states with a long history of dealing with multi-ethnic low trust uh, inter-ethnic conflict or even between themselves that's why they're trumping us is because we, we're coming out of an age where the United States for the longest time for you know roughly 250 years was marked by an ex experience of being a relatively homogenous nation state into an imperial state where there are competing ethnic groups where everything is fundamentally cynical now I understand what you're saying but you can't have your cake and eat it too you can't be an empire, which we are, whether you like it or not, and still function as though we were still a family, if that makes sense. Sure. And so America, in my personal opinion, I, I make this conviction, say what you want about you know the officer class and the U.S. military, but they're very naive and idealistic. Um, you have to be cynical to win. And uh, that's part of warfare. And, it, and I believe that all life is war. And uh, really, the only trust that you should have is in your close friends and your compatriots. Everyone else is fundamentally a, a varying degree of, of enemy, if that makes sense. So that, that's the, uh, the main thrust of, I guess, Lance's Legion for me, is kind of imbibing that ethos into the American generations that come. Uh, because that's what the older generations marked by a uh, uh, you know naivete trust a lot of uh, for instance conspiracy theories are hinged on the idea that you know x shouldn't be happening because we trusted you mm -hmm. it's like when russians hear conspiracy theories from the us they're they're kind of like it's almost endearing to them because they feel like they're like of course that's what, how it is <laughs> they, they assume it's the essence of governance <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah exactly i i want to ask you yes. a practical question and related to your show because i have a i have a sense of what you're trying to do with it and i support it you're, you're trying to basically inculcate a a culture uh i don't know if i want to go so far as to say a warrior culture because we're not a warrior nation we're sort of a mercantilist nation but i think you're trying to at least inspire 
uh, young men probably in particular, uh, to have some some positive traits, whether it's honor, you know, hard work, uh, courage, things like that. Um, and I support that. What I want to ask you though, is how do you take that intentionality and that, that positivity and then square that with what most people, not just growing up, but also living in, in the adult life in the corporate world have to deal with, with this sort of namby pamby, uh, woke, uh, everybody's the same nonsense where that's actually taught is what you're ta- trying to talk about. They're, they're taught it's bad. How do you have a, right. a normal person who wants to have a job, who wants to finish, you know, their, their college education without getting, uh, expelled? Uh, how do you, how do you have them have these values and then reconcile that with the realities of what America has turned into? I think that's a huge challenge. So, my, I, I glad, I'm glad that you brought this up. I'm a huge reader of Solzhenitsyn. I'm a huge reader about the Soviet experience under communism and what it took for a lot of people to have the convictions they had in their heart and be able to live the lie every day. Because that's what it was happening, in, especially in the late Soviet Union. Everyone was living a lie. What makes change is winning hearts. So first, you know, a strong thought then a strong action, and then a strong life, right? And uh, I guess I'm paraphrasing from Nietzsche here, but what I'm trying to get at is, first, I, you're absolutely right. My intention is to imbibe this vision that I have for America, which is Roman. It's martial and to change the soul of America, and America can change. In fact, I believe that it is, it is ultimately what it will become. Because when all these things fall away, what we give right, you know, what we give value to the mercantilist, whatever, you know, Dutch, Anglo kind of culture, I think it's all falling away. And what will rise out of those ashes is fundamentally something martial, or it will die. And uh, for someone in their personal life, I would give practical advice. I would say this: is that yes, you have to live a lie. You can't be going out there and having strong you know, opinions about things anymore because you get whacked. Yeah, d- you know, don't pick a fight with your boss who, you know, pays your bills. I mean, it's just not smart. This is how I'd put it, but go ahead, exactly. please. Exactly. Smile on their face, tell them what they like, you know what I mean? But uh, how, never lie to yourself. Right. And I would say this is that, you know, listen to my show or listen to shows that imbibe you with a manly spirit. Read the, you know, classical sources. And then also, most importantly, practice MMA. Why do I say practice MMA? Because ultimately, mixed martial arts or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you don't want to do contact, um, reveals to you the essence of life itself. It changes your, you know, not just your physiological nature, but your psychological nature. Um, and the fact that it's always about conflict, but also when you hang out at those gyms, it's a whole culture. You hang out with dudes that hang out with you. Like, you know, it's when you go to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I've been doing it since I was five on and off. And it's like, it turns into a friend group. You talk to each other when you're rolling, you know, you kind of impart certain warrior values to each other, truth and so on. And that grows. And that's part of the reason why the Soviet Union communism is part of the reason why a lot of liberals nowadays push back on, for instance, gym culture, on, on mixed martial arts, especially UFC. If, if you notice that, they, they focus a lot on making sure people are not prone to conflict. They, they think that conflict itself is evil. But this is a lie, right? Like the, these people are fundamentally parsing information from a position of weakness. It's usually, you know, 
like weak people that want to seduce you into a state of being it's crabs and crabs in a bucket they, they want they want to bring you down because you're making them look bad is, is how i put it uh but i, I yes. want to support your comment about the the martial arts mma i think you don't have to just do mma but i think there's many things out there that that combine the physicality the mental and the spiritual together and i think martial arts is a fantastic way to do that but what i wanted to add it to contradict what maybe some may have you believe uh you're talking to guys i would assume mostly but every woman i've ever talked to whether they're liberal or not they they kind of admit to me that they find guys who who fight or go to fighting gyms or or compete very attractive uh, without exception and, and most women I know are liberal. So, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be worried about the female aspect if you're going to like spend your free time training. I think it's a good idea. And I, I, I feel remiss if I didn't ask you because I think there's there's some of what you talk about and maybe you, you want to distance yourself from this particular individual, but he's he's been become famous. Do you have any thoughts on Andrew Tate and what's happened to him? Because he's a fighter. He talks about masculinity. Um, he just got basically zogged i mean or he calls it the matrix but um are you familiar with the this, this story like this guy was basically yeah. just like kickboxer and then he uh he be, i don't know i think he became kind of degenerate frankly he he sort of opened a webcam business and then he transitioned out of a casino but then he he's a really good speaker and so he sort of started talking about uh all this like mind control stuff from the woke culture and he he struck a chord and and he got really really popular and then they put him in jail. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's sort of a warning sign potentially, but it also it's inspirational because in my opinion, he's fighting back. And I think a lot of people agree with him. And he did this interview with the BBC recently where he just, I mean, just however you want to measure it, like all the comments were basically on his side and you yeah. know, the BBC closes their comment section, of course, but I want to hear what you think. I, I think, um, I don't like materialist culture. I don't. I don't think having you know Bugais or whatever. I, I agree. Like the I the agree. end end all of a of a spirit a spiritual you know echelon. But I would say this. I would say that it's incredibly important what he's doing. It's incredibly impactful. And most importantly, more than anything, it works. It works better than autistically posting on the internet about this or that yep. or making conspiracy theories. He's the one that was able to. Uh, talk to the youth in a way that they understood and inspired them to yes. action and to change their perspective yeah. and most importantly to voice the opinions that they had in their hearts out in public which is a whole different step and so you know for for he has a lot of foibles that i disagree with i mean like obviously any respectable man would but i as far as like imbibing a kind of masculine culture i think he's indispensable and i think he's doing a great job and an important job and i i won't say anything negative about the guy especially because all the right guys all the right people are hating on him so i'm like yeah you know at the end of the day he's a son of a bitch but he's my son of a bitch you know what i mean yeah and and just to sort of expand on that um i've heard people I, i've gone on uh uh, a guy's show that I'm hoping to have on soon actually. And I know that they've talked about him before on their show 
and they, they focus on, you know, like women and feminism and masculinity and stuff like that. And so Andrew Tate came up like last year, actually. Um, but what they were observing and I agree with is that he actually was saying a lot of the stuff that people on the sort of alt-right dissident sphere have been saying for years. It wasn't that original. But the way he did it, and because he's intelligent and he used to be a chess player and he's got the athlete sort of competitiveness, he's charismatic. He speaks quickly but clearly, and he actually trains himself on on diction and everything, which I have a lot of respect for. Uh, he's able to deliver the message. And if you learn anything in marketing, the medium is kind of the message. And the reason I think he caught on, especially in the younger men's community, is it is the materialism stuff. I mean, they see the sort of the bling, the cars, the the girls. I mean, it's sort of tacky as you get older. And I think he's actually getting to that point also as he matures. But he's got the delivery mechanism to get the message out there. And for any detractors who want to say that he's like not original or he's just copying all these people, who cares? I mean, if you really believe in actually these principles, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter then you shouldn't be uh, envious or jealous of the fact that he he's getting credit for it. Uh, while, you know, we've been working on this stuff for years. I'm glad he's doing it. It's getting the message out. That's what I care about the most. And can yes. he improve? Yeah, but you know, who can't. So that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll add, I'll add to what you said is like, first of all, does it come into our benefit or general vector in our benefit or against us? And I think it's in our benefit and does it work? Absolutely. I hundred percent, I would put my uh, neck out for the guys. Absolutely. I think he's doing great. So, so to, to bring us back to uh, your show and great, maybe, thanks. Oh, uh, and, and maybe going forward, uh, do you want to tell us about your, your publishing, uh, operation? Yeah. Uh, so I think the most important thing that, a especially a military leader has to do is read, read widely and read the right things. Uh, and I think, uh, fundamentally a lot of the right things were things that are, you know, actually in the public sphere, right? The only difference that I'm making is curating a list of reading material for, uh, in my mind, uh, you know, junior officers or junior leaders and, you know, junior, you know, basically young men about to be in the military. I'm curating a list of books and making aesthetic covers for them and making them sexy. And I guess that's my uh, my personal, I guess, Andrew Tate moment is just basically um, it's not just giving people the right thing to have, but also inspiring them to read it, to enjoy it. And I believe a lot in aesthetics. I, this is why a lot of my... Uh, stuff I, I put a lot of effort into my optics i put a lot of effort into how i present myself because at the end of the day um a lot the, of it the medium is the is message oftentimes at least the, it, to get people's attention it is and then you can sell yes. them on the rest of it but yeah you're right i exactly. completely agree exactly what what do you have planned for your um your other stuff you you have a podcast what what do you uh what are you trying to work on what are your what's your focus area so my focus area in general is um, it's not just a litany of different historical locations, I guess I would say. I call them locations because it's a great place to teach leadership, for instance. It's a great place to teach about human human psychology, how it responds to stress, but also dispelling a number of different conceits that were brought up to raise, especially, for instance, uh, one thing that annoys me the most about the American military culture is that it gets choir boys to do 
bad guy killing, right? And I think that's why the United States, compared to Russia, compared to uh, a number of other different countries, suffers a lot from PTSD. And I'm not talking about the kinetic PTSD. I'm not talking about this or that. It's because we're raised with um, fundamentally anti-martial, anti-real values that are designed to make us, you know, passive. And what ends up happening is that the United States military selects for these people because they're biddable, and they'll do whatever they want. And uh, ultimately, what I'm trying to do is imbibe a more kind of rugged culture, a more realistic culture. I mean, just like, uh, for instance, Caesar, for instance, he was known to be cruel if he was pushed to do so, but he didn't take, not like he took perverse pleasure in it. And I think that's what a lot of Americans believe is that if you are capable of cruelty, that somehow you are yourself perverse in some ways, a sadist. But I think what will be the future, the future belongs to those that are able to inflict great pain to have something done in their favor. And that's the unfortunate truth. I mean, Nietzsche says that specifically. I, I love Nietzsche, if you can't tell. I, you know, the reason why I love him is because, uh, you know, he talks about history, for instance, and and another different philosophy of retelling history. And my personal philosophy of retelling history, you read the primary sources, you read um, a lot of modern sources, and it's boring. People don't want to read that shit. At the end of the day, I think that history should be read as if you're taking meth and you're on steroids at the same time. It should read as if, you know, it's a pre-workout. And um, I think that's, a, that, that, that's the fundamental niche that I'm trying to fill, is to inspire people to, to action as opposed to just contemplation. So I know that's kind of a word vomit, but I'm not really, it's very ephemeral as far as, nebulous as far as what I'm trying to achieve. It's very whole picture, and I'm trying to achieve something that's uh, very like uh, soft power, changing culture by proxy, if that makes sense. Well, just to back you up real quick, and then I, I think we'll conclude. Um, I listened to an interview you did recently on Nietzsche, um, and the fellow you had on was was quite brilliant. I'd never heard of him before, so I forgot his name, but I wrote it down, and um, I thought it was an excellent discussion you had about Nietzsche. And, and masculinity in general. And so I, you know, I think that's basically your, your genre. It's, it's military history. It's the military philosophy, martial philosophy and, and masculinity. And I think there's a need for that. And I think you do a good job at it. And I think a lot of people may try to do that, but I think you've, you, you've done a better job than most. And so I continue to look forward to your future work. Well, thanks brother. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this has actually been a huge pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you.